0: Hey everybody, this is the Washington State Indivisible podcast, part of the Demcast Podcast Network. I'm your host, Stefan Cox. Today as part of our Town Hall series in partnership with the Washington Indivisible Network and Indivisible Tacoma, we present a conversation with Superintendent of Public Instruction, Chris Rakedahl, who is running for re-election this year. In our wide-ranging talk, we discuss the challenges of reopening our schools during a pandemic, as well as budget issues, and we have an extensive conversation about racial equity. This talk was recorded live on the evening of Tuesday, June 24th. Welcome to tonight's Indivisible Town Hall. My name is Stephen Cox. I host the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I will be your host and moderator this evening. Big thank you to Kat Pipkin with the Washington Indivisible Network, and also Julie Onzievsky with Indivisible Tacoma. Special thanks to Robin Gittleman for her help tonight. Thank you also to Senator Lisa Wellman, April Berg, Becca Ritchie, Erin Jones, Fernell Miller, Kathleen Hyman, and Christiana DeLeon. And thanks to all of you for joining us, whether you are joining us live tonight or are one of the many people listening via the podcast, or you are listening on one of the terrestrial radio stations here in the state that carry the podcast, welcome. We are so glad that you are with us. And so with that, let us introduce our guest. Chris Rakdahl has served as Washington's Superintendent of Public Instruction since 2017. Previous to that, he was representative for the 22nd LD from 2011 to 2017. He is currently running for re-election, and we are so happy to welcome him. Superintendent Reykdahl, welcome.
1: Uh, Thank you for having me. Good to see you all.
0: For those of us who may not be familiar, uh, can you just give us a job description? What specifically does the superintendent of public instruction do?
1: Yeah, great. This is a constitutionally uh, established office in 1889. Uh, It is the only nonpartisan office in the state uh, with respect to how you file on ballots. All the other statewide electeds run as a party label. Uh, As superintendent, you are essentially overseeing the state's education system with respect to all manner of Appropriations, So all the money that goes to school districts comes through here. Uh, you are setting um, learning standards here at OSPI, not individual curriculum or lesson plans. That's all done at the local level and with school boards and teachers, but you're setting uh, learning standards here and then all the accountability. So all the performance of the system as measured uh, from everything from transcript stuff to student assessments, all of that performance data comes back here Uh, feeds the legislature, the governor and other decision makers. So the money and the policy goes out to the system, the performance occurs, it all comes back here. uh, And we essentially try to broker, uh, hopefully a improved education system over time uh, in both directions. And uh, there's a high of detail behind it, but that's
0: the big stuff. Oh, I'm sure we're just scratching the surface here. But So basically, uh, setting learning standards, accountability, and, uh, and gathering and accumulating and processing data, uh, particularly the learning standards are something that I'm really going to want to dig into deeply uh, tonight. And, and I'll just tell you, as we get started here, there's so much that people want to hear from you about uh, what is happening with our schools around COVID, obviously, uh, budgetary issues. Uh, and I do plan on spending a good portion of our discussion tonight on the matter of racial equity because it just overlaps with so much. Uh, But before we get to that, I just want to ask you a larger philosophical question. And I'll just ask you, how do you see the purpose of education? Is it to become a well-rounded person, to become a productive member of society, to train somebody for employment? How do you see it?
1: So I think it's comprehensive. I I describe public education in particular um, as the potential to be a tremendously democratic tool. Um, It has the ability to lift people up when it's done well, Given institutional racism that exists in education, though, it can also hold people down when it's not done well. Uh, but it is a democratizing tool, right? We utilize a tax code. We socialize the cost across everybody to spend roughly twelve dollars to $15,000 per student, so nearly $200,000 over their lifetime from kindergarten to 12th grade, uh, trying to get everybody a high-quality education. In our state, there's a lot of law around making it the paramount duty, the primary goal of state government. Um, is to amply fund the system and create opportunity for kids. So it is all of those things. It is creating a learner. Uh, It is creating a student with the momentum to go post-secondary, and I mean that broadly, colleges, universities, military service, straight to work, apprenticeship, all of it. Um, And it is, when it's done well, a place where students get to learn from each other. And um, when we do it, I think, exceedingly well, Students build a beautiful tolerance for the diversity around them, and then they get to apply that to a lifetime of engagement. So it's really foundational. It's half our state budget. Uh, It's 3% of our entire state's economy in public ed. I think it should be closer to 3.6. Maybe we'll talk about that later. Uh, But it is a huge democratizing tool uh, that is pretty transformative when it's done well.
0: Well, yeah, we're definitely going to talk about budgetary issues, but I'd like to start by talking about the pandemic and the reopening. We got so many questions about this. Uh, As we all know, schools had to shift to remote learning this year. Do you have any metrics at this point on how that shift has impacted students' performance, their engagement, their emotional state? So we don't
1: have data except connectivity. We think roughly 15 to 20% of families did not have an effective connection remotely, either because they didn't have the speeds, they didn't have the connection in their community or the hardware. That seemed to be the smaller of the issues, but certainly a lack of connectivity. Um, We tried to implement, as you know, a a grading system that that, that really took a try to do no harm concept. So no Fs were allowed, no student could backslide. Uh, we tried to make sure that if there was a teacher who didn't believe students were able to meet performance standards, um, either because the work wasn't there or the student just couldn't connect, instead of an F, it was an incomplete. And now the obligation is on the school system to re-engage that student and give them a better chance of learning now that we're starting to open up our facilities. so. you. Um, Definitely have a better sense of the academics and the opportunity and the momentum that we were able to create for a lot of students. We definitely have a connectivity sense. The mental health side of this is going to need an enormous amount of research because there's a lot of speculation that this was worse for kids. Uh, I teach, I, don't, I get to talk to a lot of students, and many of them struggled a bit by not having connection to their, their teachers. A lot of them actually expressed an enormous amount of relief because school is not a place that's necessarily um, void of pressure and social pressure. And for those who really just wanted to focus on the academics and independent learning, for some of them, they had a better experience. So there's a lot of speculation on how hard this was for students. And I actually think on balance it was with two public school students of my own, one had a great experience, one kind of moderate. Uh, I think we don't know the long-term effects of that. And it will certainly need some research down the road, both on the social emotional side, as well as the academic side. And what I do remind people is 53 million American kids were out of school, every one of them across the country. billion uh, students around the world. So I do hear a lot of people say, oh, we lost ground. We lost ground. We definitely lost ground from where we thought we would be if we go back to February, but we didn't lose any ground to the planet.
0: Yeah, it does seem like everybody lost some ground. And I think people would be interested to know what you learned during this process. You mentioned that no student would receive an f that they would receive an incomplete. I was told, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that many students were told they would receive the same grade no matter what they did. And so uh, many just simply weren't engaging. And I'm wondering if that's one of the things that you would maybe reconsider if we need to go back to remote learning.
1: Well, we already have. um, So going forward, if districts find themselves not able to meet the physical distancing requirements of the Department of Health, they may not be able to bring all their students back face to face. Uh, there'll be a hybrid model, blended models, alternating schedules. Uh, we're gonna revert the grading system back to whatever the school district had you know, locally decided. They could, they could make the transition. I'd love to see them get rid of Fs, uh, but not engaging won't really be an option this time uh, because districts, again, uh, provided things go well. We'll be able to bring back students and we've made them put a priority on those uh, most distant from educational justice, students with disabilities, English language learners, and those who just could not connect remotely uh, that's a priority for districts. So I think we get a lot better in sort of version 2.0 of this. Um, there's definitely still some downside risk here. I hope districts do revisit their practices, including homework. I think it is one of those classic sort of systemic racist concepts where homework by definition uh, and statistically has enhanced the performance of it uh, by families who have resources and families who have a lot of time with their kids, uh, working families who cannot put in that kind of time uh, there's just data that shows it's a harmful thing. So all of these learning lessons about a, about a global virus land at the feet of racial equity and uh, economic justice. And now we get a chance to do something different about that. And I'm very excited that some districts are saying, hey, we didn't get it exactly right, but we also don't want to go back to the way it was before. And that's pretty heartening for me.
0: Please hold that space because that's something that I want to unpack, unpack in depth with you uh, in, in just a bit. Uh, you mentioned the sort of a hybrid reopening. I believe the plan right now is to have schools uh, reopen this fall, but of course we don't know what the pandemic is going to look like at that point, and it's certainly not expected to be over. This is a big question with a lot of moving parts, but how specifically are you planning on making in-school teaching safe for students and for teachers and staff alike?
1: Yeah, so we partner with Department of Health, who has broad legal authority over the health conditions of both public health and then how we uh, conduct schools. We partner with Labor and Industries, who has total control over worker safety. So in this case, our teachers, counselors, all of our adults in the system, and the governor's office. And what we try to create here was the capacity, the space, the policy space for school districts to open this fall. But they have to follow all of the health frameworks. And it's a lot. It's screening for students and staff. It's... Um,
0: now, when, you, when you say screening, if I could just jump in, what does screening look like specifically?
1: Well, they point to the CDC guidance. So we've got these health regulators, l and Department of Health, and they say you can either do it on site, so if students come in, you got to have a physical screening of them, including a, a thermal scan, a temperature check, or it can be an attestation at home. Parents do it at home, uh, in the privacy of their own home, and they either send something in that says, I affirm that I've uh, scanned my kid, or there are even apps out there now where they can hit a button. Uh, and say, yep, I definitely did a cough check, I did a temperature check, I did a symptom check. So there's a lot here, but physical distancing and face coverings are the other two that are really huge. And what Department of Health will tell you is multiple layers of protection create the very uh, best possibility of keeping transmissions uh, zero to low and give us the best chance to open. What we have had to make it clear to everybody is we want our facilities available. And so that's what we're opening is our buildings to learning. In a lot of communities, they cannot possibly meet the physical distancing requirement of six feet between students and get everyone back at the same time, which is why you're still hearing about some online learning, some hybrid models. Uh, For example, you're going to hear districts say, we're going to dedicate all of our square footage to K-8, and we're going to ask our high school students to really take the brunt of any additional online learning because we cannot physically accommodate them all at the same time. If your classroom has to go from 28 kids to, say, 16 or 18 to meet the physical space distances, you run out of space or you run out of certificated teachers really fast to do it.
0: I have a question specifically about the younger kids and the way that they may or may not adapt to this situation. Uh, you know, so with kindergartners and first graders, you're dealing with kids who may not understand the mask. They may not get social distancing. Uh, how, how do you anticipate dealing with that?
1: Yeah, Department of Health thinks through a lot of this stuff, of course. And so the multiple layers of protection is the way they think about it. Let's start with the physical distancing. The model has to be like, imagine the bell rings and everyone were to take their seat initially. You need six feet of spacing when that happens. They also recognize, though, that students are going to move about and teachers are going to move and work with students individually, and they're going to pass each other in the hallways. So this is not an absolute every minute has to be six feet. It's that your planning framework has to accommodate this. And that reduces the probability that students are in proximity to each other for more than 15 minutes at a time. The mask requirement is tough, right? We're a state that's, uh, there are others doing it as well and their preliminary guidance, but some are not. And uh, our observation of having sent uh, kind of a research team to comb the world by phone and and video conferences uh, 12 or 13 other countries where uh, most of them require face coverings. Actually, they do during flu season in many of those countries. Uh, This is gonna not surprise some of you, but students don't generally have a problem with this. They understand the framework and they do it. We have a political, ideological challenge in this country right now, I think a cultural war that's happening. Uh, it's landed right now, and the current uh, debate is on face coverings. <laughs> uh, there are people uncomfortable that government would require things, but we require goggles and science classrooms and clothes, toed shoes for all things physical activity, PE, athletics. Uh, we we do this, and right now it just calls for this common moment where we make this sacrifice for each other. and. Um, most people are quite a bit more worried about the, the political ideology of it right now than the actual reality for students. But there are also exceptions for students, by the way, uh, who medically should not have a mask on. And all students will be able to allow uh, have a shield, a face shield with a lot more uh, airflow than just the cloth face covering. And now I is also going to extend that opportunity for our teachers as well. So you actually have options besides the cloth face covering in school next year.
0: Yeah, you know, I did speak to several teachers in preparation for our talk today, and they do have a lot of concerns about COVID safety. Um, I had an older teacher specifically mention to me that she was concerned because her age puts her in a risk category, a high risk category. How do you address that?
1: Yeah, just really awesome partnership with L&I. Very specific language that are in other industries, by the way, that gives the employee tremendous power. They can identify or not as high risk. And so there's a definition of that. An employee doesn't have to help themselves. You could be a 68 employee with an underlying health condition and say, I choose to work and I'm coming in and you don't owe that uh, to anyone. You can keep that private. Or you can say, hey, I don't think I'm in a high risk category and I don't think you've created quite enough protection. And you can actually get your employer to produce more uh, PPE or more safety precautions for you. If you can't quite get that done, given the circumstance that you're in, uh, your job type, then you can seek an alternative work assignment. And as you know, we'll have some students who still have to learn at a distance in most places. So we think we can accommodate a lot of those teachers to teach at a distance. If you still can't get agreement with the employer and the employee, uh, then the employer must provide all manner of leave available to that employee, uh, including some new leave that's been provided by the federal government through employment security specific to COVID-19 impacts. So multiple ways where the employee controls their safety framework, has expectations of the employer to get accommodation and um, kind of as a last measure would have to use any leave balances. But it's been very well thought out by L and I and they've applied that same uh, concept for our educators.
0: I, I'm curious to know before we move on from this subject, what the plan is specifically to deal with any outbreaks. Is there a threshold or percentage of students or staff infections that would automatically say trigger a school closing?
1: Yeah, in this case, every single um, identification, a suspected case or a confirmed case gets reported to local county health, and that's when they take over. So what they do is now, with a much better trained staff of um, folks in contact tracing, uh, they come in and make a very, very rapid assessment of the the student or the staff member's movements, depending on who it was. Part of the reason the Department of Health is so focused on multi-tiered physical safety protocols is if we are actually six feet in distancing and we're wearing face coverings, it dramatically reduces the probability of spread and it allows that contact tracing to go much faster. When this all started in March and there were a case, uh, candidly, nobody in public health at the local level had been through this before and it was shut down the whole facility for a week or two at a time. They are far more sophisticated now and are confident that we would definitely uh, isolate students, get them quarantined, do contact tracing, but perhaps within 24 or 48 hours, after we clean the facility, those schools would be back up and
0: running again. I'm sure that the learning curve has just been enormously uh, steep uh, this year. Uh, I, I wanna shift over and talk about budgetary issues. We got a lot of questions about this as well. We are expecting an $8.8 billion budget shortfall over the next three years due to COVID. As we know, the state is constitutionally required to fund schools, but you know it's failed in the past, most recently with the McCleary ruling. Uh, it's my understanding that we're getting some $270 million from the federal government, from the CARES Act. Um, you have familiarity with the state budget as a, as a former representative. Two questions here. How would you like to see the CARES Act money apportioned? And then where would you like to see the rest of the money come from?
1: So the legislature will deal with an $8.8 billion impact. I will I will say very clearly as an old budget guy, that's $4.5 billion in the first year. And then it bow waves forward. So you don't cut $4.5 billion and then have to cut another $4.3 billion. If you get it all done in the first year, that bow waves forward. Uh, that, that matters a lot, by the way, because it, it might be as, as simple as one year. Um, the CARES Act money is very prescriptive. The feds have already told us that it can be used for a lot of COVID impacts, but by formula, it goes to school district based on high poverty. So this is going to disproportionately go to communities uh, who have uh, broader low income. And it can be pretty widely applied to anything that's been an impact from COVID-19. Buying PPE, additional supports for students who weren't well connected, buying connectivity for students. So that's all sort of set in formula. It is only about 1.3% of our budget in total. So it's like $220 million, which is enormously helpful, but it is not a game changer. So I'm gonna be honest with you all. Um, I came out pretty publicly and pretty sharply when we were asked as agencies to cut 15% or have exercises. Uh, my answer was, this is not a time for austerity. Um, that is a failed practice of prior uh, times. Austerity is fundamentally an, an activity of white privilege. Uh, you are disproportionately in the public sector serving folks who, who do not have necessarily access to a lot of resources to purchase or consume in the private sector. Public schools, by definition, support families who otherwise wouldn't have access to public education because they didn't for a 100 years in this country. So when you cut schools, you cut health care, you cut higher ed access, you cut housing, you cut food supports, you cut TANF, you are fundamentally harming people who are most likely to be people of color, uh, indigenous populations, uh, English language learners, immigrants, and those who are low income. So this is not the time to do that. (laughs) So what I've said is, let's make sure we tap the rainy day fund. There's a reason Democrats have raised $3 billion and socked it away. It's for moments just like this. And the feds are still contemplating another very large uh, consideration that would send multiple billions of dollars to the states specifically to help state and local government balance their budgets without
0: cuts. And you're referring to the HEROES Act there.
1: Right, right. So before we start slashing budgets, let's take a deep breath. Let's use our rainy day fund to buy enough time to see if Congress acts. And there is a scenario here where we do not have to do the most harm to the most vulnerable folks. Uh, but we got to not be knee-jerk about it. We can't do the same old thing where we just jump to cuts. And um, when Democrats and progressives first thought is cuts, uh, they are not thinking with an equity lens. First thing first is let's be efficient, right? Let's get better at what we do. Second thing is, do we have capacity for more equitable revenue? Clearly we do in a state that relies on sales tax and b We hammer low income. We hammer small business. We give an almost complete pass to those who are very high earners and high margin uh, businesses, large global Wall Street companies.
0: Absolutely. Well, so how would you like to see their contribution adjusted?
1: capital gains at a minimum. So you need to get an effective tax rate where we're all sitting at 11 or 12%. Today, the wealthiest in our state pay 3%, and our lowest income pay in excess of 17% uh, of their income in state and local taxes. So you've got to shift that burden. You do that through capital gains. You do that through other tax mechanisms. If you do it effectively, you can actually reduce consumptive things like sales tax. um, And I've never been a big fan of sin taxes either. People have all kinds of arguments for why they might change behavior, but it hammers low-income people. So let's not turn once again to alcohol, marijuana, cigarettes, and other things as our revenue. Then you're then you are ironically telling people please gamble more, smoke more, so that we can uh, pay for school. It's a dumb, dumb tax code.
0: You mentioned uh, not being in favor of austerity, uh, and I will just ask you, because we did, and you touched on this a little bit earlier, uh, we did get a a few questions about whether there would be certain cuts to programmer staff. So I would just love to get you to uh, address those specifically who are concerned about PE, for example, uh, music, art, libraries, nurses, counselors. Uh, We know that there's already been uh, a state-mandated cut uh, to counselors' budgets. Can you speak to that?
1: Yeah, about 96.5% of our budget in K-12 now we think is constitutionally protected. We have run those numbers through budget writers, staff, and OFM, the Office of Financial Management. They concur with us. The legislature handed the court documents that said, to prove we have funded the McCleary case, here's all the places we protected money. It's about 96.5% of our budget. That means there's 3.5%, which seems small, but it's $700 million still at risk because it's uh, payments to low-income communities who can't raise local levies. It's teacher national board bonuses, for example. Some of our best and most highly qualified teachers would run a risk of not getting their annual bonus. So we do not intend to have any of that be cut. We're gonna fight like hell for all of that. Um, The governor did have to make some vetoes of things the legislature just passed and it was heartbreaking because we worked for years to get more counselors, specifically in elementary school. Um, And that fell fell to his veto pen. Uh, But we don't intend to put anything on the chopping block that serves students. Um, Austerity is not the answer. Um, even, the, even the cuts that are being asked of the state agencies, so not the K-12 school districts, but our agency, uh, we're going to talk about those as delays in implementation of cost of living and things. Uh, we are going to seek to not take permanent cuts. Hammering the public sector um, at the expense of making sure cruise lines are bailed out, which is happening right now, um, and hotels are bailed out, and destination resorts are bailed out is a failed, failed, failed American policy. So we think we can avoid
0: it. I will ask you about uh, hashtag defund the police. Many municipalities are asking for police funds to be drawn down and reallocated with uh, often a large portion going to education. Now I know that this doesn't fall, or I don't believe this falls under your purview, but is it something that you would theoretically support?
1: Yeah, so our schools in particular don't have line items for what we call school resource officers. Sometimes they're commissioned, sometimes they're not. Sometimes they have uh, their arms, sometimes they're not. Um, I will tell you that I do not personally support any uh, practices that bring firearms into our schools. I just don't believe that that is healthy and safe. I think the covert uh, aggression of that is real. And there is no evidence that armed officers uh, are a mitigating factor, for example, in national school shooting data. So what I would say in my space, because I don't control police and, and, and sheriff's offices and local governments is that's something they have to figure out. In schools though, um, we would be much better served in mental health um, and actually implementing the complete rewrite we've done of discipline and behavior because it's disproportionate against uh, particularly young black males. We would be far better off in early interventions there than the law enforcement presence. Now, that said, local school districts still have 15% of their budgets coming from local levies and they have complete freedom on what they can do with that. Uh, So it would take a legislative action to come in and say you know, no to everything. Uh, But to this day, we do not appropriate out of this office money for SROs. Those are local decisions by districts. I think the legislature should step in and remove firearms from those folks, probably remove them as commissioned officers um, and really make them, um, you know, really student uh, engagement, uh, perhaps somebody with expertise uh, in um, broader student supports and community engagement. But the law enforcement logic of this uh, immediately creates an environment of imprisonment. And it has been well documented that we have more schools uh, in this state uh, with, with SROs, so police officers in our elementary schools, than we do counselors. School counselors.
0: Wow. Well, so you are transitioning us where I wanted to go next, which is issues of, of racial equity. And this I would like to have this conversation in light of the events of the last few weeks. And I will start by acknowledging my own privilege here. And I will let you know that during the interview prep that I did uh, for our discussion, I spoke with a number of BIPOC instructors, uh, Black, Indigenous, people of color, some of whom were very hopeful that this moment could bring about real change. But many of them were very angry at a state education system that they feel marginalizes and does not hear BIPOC students and teachers. And I wanted to share some questions that came up uh, with these instructors. First, uh, how do you personally and professionally understand the issue of equity?
1: Well, as I have tried to describe for folks, um, this is baked into the American system of pure racism. Our, Our founding constitution dehumanized people of color and women. It fundamentally said the democracy is not for them. So at this point, you can't point to law enforcement alone, policing practices alone. Every single aspect of the American system, from its social constructs to its legal system, to housing, to education, to finance, is fundamentally designed around keeping capital and keeping rights away from people. And we're going to keep feeling the effects of that four and 500 years later. Uh, so, we all own this um, as a white male cis. I have huge privilege and I have a role to be an ally, and in this organization, since we've been here the last three and a half years, we've tried to be very intentional about who's here, uh, who we hire, how we tear down barriers to access to this kind of leadership that can really matter. Uh, we've taken uh, small steps in our journey for understanding individually uh, how people understand race and their biases and we're starting to make a larger transition here now at the strong urging of our staff, it's very democratic, it's a very big lift by them, it's in part, to, to go beyond the individual to anti-racist practices. So we've taken on student discipline, as we talked about. We've taken on who gets access to advanced classes. But I could go through every aspect of the education system and point out deep-seated structural systems that were meant to give privilege to those who already had it and to hold down those who did not. And so I think the entire system needs to be subject to examination based on race. And um, I I feel like we're on the journey. What this moment I think in American history gives us is the realization that we better expedite this and bring different voices into it or it'll always just be incremental. And that's the challenge we have here. We're not always good at it, but I think we've built a framework for doing it well. Um, We may have the only mission statement in state government that talks about tearing down uh, barriers to racial justice. And uh, we rewrote that a
0: couple years ago to be very intentional. A lot of the discussions that I had were about listening. And I will just ask you um, how are you working to listen and and really center the needs of BIPOC students and teachers in your schools? Uh, Who are you talking to? Who are you listening to?
1: Yeah, so there's a before COVID and an after a little bit, right? Because the modality is definitely changing, but the audiences in some ways are empowered because we can get access to rural communities, particularly Native communities. And then in some ways, it makes it harder because I don't get my 3,000 miles a month traveling the state being in community and particularly listening to students in community. Uh, But lots of things here uh, happen. We have, uh, like so many organizations, had an introspection about whether or not we actually lift the voices of our communities of color and our, our indigenous folks in our office. We have an office here of Native Education. We've doubled those resources in the last three years. Uh, their work is both a, a little bit internal, but mostly external, doing training for thousands of teachers around um, our since time Memorial curriculum. We are trying to help educators around the state understand that they have a legal responsibility to bring in local uh, history, local culture, Uh, local shared governance, right? This is um, a government to government relationship that requires consultation. We are teaching educators on a daily basis through that organization, how to do that work with fidelity. And you're starting to finally see curriculum at the localist of level that tries to reflect uh, the indigenous communities that were here and and lift them up. So that's one example where there's something actually baked into the system of our supports. Um, There is not a similar organization here uh, for Black African American. We obviously have our commissions and we have partner organizations around the state, a lot of them community-based organizations, some with an emphasis in the business community. And then I take invite from any of those communities that will have me. Um, I've had a a relatively good relationship, been a good relationship, but relatively longer uh, with the Black Collective in Pierce County, uh, who I think is uh, incredibly grounded in a much longer tradition than some others. Uh, in terms of the, the fight for racial justice. And so I try to be in spaces with folks. Um, there are a growing number of organizations. Uh, they tend to be more urban right now, uh, focused on this question, but I'm also trying to figure out where in rural Washington we can do it. Uh, because the oppression of our immigrant communities, for example, our Latino, Latino communities, there isn't the big media spotlight on them. Uh, but if you're following at all, for example, the cases in Yakima around COVID, that is fundamentally because those folks do not have voice, they do not have representation, they do not feel they have rights, and they're packed into processing facilities that are now killing them quite literally. So, um, trying to be in community, uh, listening to groups who uh, give invite, formal structures here that have an outreach. Um, and then of course, in all of our planning processes, uh, we now have a protocol for trying to make sure that our partner associations bring us diversity, racial diversity, as well as geographic and gender. and. Um, It's a very different system than it was three years ago, I can tell you that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, so much has changed uh, in the last three years. You you touched on curriculum a little bit, and I want to get your thoughts on an open letter that I received today, and this is from students, parents, and staff of the North Shore School District. They are calling for concrete action on racial equity. Uh, This letter has been forwarded to the Washington State Board of Education, who I know the OSPI works alongside. Um, There are nearly 600 signatures on this. And I just I I wanted to get your thoughts on what one student wrote with their signature because it jumped out to me and it it called for some action that I wanted to, to gauge your thoughts on. Uh, the student says, quote, anti-racism needs to be at the forefront of K-312 education. White fragility needs to be addressed and analyzed. Include or center black lenses and experience and teachings of history. Dispel false narratives. I never once learned about the Tulsa race massacre of 1921. Why don't we require students to read books written by African American authors addressing race in America? By sheltering students from these very real discussions, we are contributing to the mistreatment and systemic racism that we're still seeing today. So, I'll just ask you before we get into the, some of the the more concrete steps. What are your baseline thoughts uh, to what that student had to say? It's
1: absolutely right on point, and I think there's a there's um, a very unhealthy condition that drives all of that truth, and um, that is that constant tension that this state has, in most states in the country, between local control and state control. Right, this is the classic example where everyone loves local control, local control, keep everything local. And generally, I agree with that. I want locally elected school boards uh, to reflect their community and have their values at stake. They're the ones being taxed for local levies. But anytime you localize something, you essentially give tacit permission to folks who are very homogeneous and who may um, have an affirmative aggression against uh, questions of race to not build it into their curriculum right? All the curriculum in this state is adopted by local school districts. We only have learning standards at at, at our state level. Local districts decide this. And so you get these incredible districts who take a deep dive in racial justice. They transform practices. They're bringing uh, racial equity frameworks. They're elevating people in their organization. They're redesigning curriculum in some ways around this. And you have districts who have not moved off of step one, and there is no local pressure to do that.
0: And that is not something that you in your capacity can change.
1: Well, this is what I think is the opportunity. We can start to take a lot more risk about that. So our decision, for example, to move on student discipline after 40 years of no significant changes to the rule was us saying, we may not have explicit permission from local systems, but we're not gonna continue to leave it up to them. We're gonna have a statewide framework and force this question. The legislature, and then we expanded, Um, this idea of ethnic studies. So we need to build intentional learning standards around race, learning about race as standalone courses and embedded in things like social studies, English language arts, the arts, the sciences. So we've had this group building out a concept here that we can then say to school districts, we expect you, whether it's in your social studies or English classes, to begin to put a framework of, of a racial lens in your work. It is not a standalone class. It has to be embedded in your learning uh, across the way. It originally started as a 6th through 12th grade bill. Uh, We made the commitment to bring it all the way to kindergarten. We've had a very big team around the state trying to build that framework. So the answer is yes, we do have to take greater responsibility at the state, make people uncomfortable and attention with local control and just say uh, the public interest now is around anti-racist practices because it's holding the entire state and the nation and and the world back we got to push that, and we've found places we can push on that, and we got to keep pushing
0: on that. You uh, were, as I mentioned, a member of the state legislature, so you obviously have uh, deep relationships there. You mentioned working with the legislature on this, and I'm wondering, are you aware of anything that's in the works right now uh, in a concrete way uh, around changes in curriculum that could address things like anti-racism, white fragility, the issues of equity that this student brings up?
1: Yeah, so I think uh, I've only heard because the legislature is not in session and and they don't have any obligation to reach out to us, but I have certainly heard uh, that both the House and the Senate and in a joint effort have a caucus of color uh, beautifully that has grown a lot in the last four uh, years, last two election cycles. Uh, We certainly are aware that they are starting to build some concepts, uh, both in education but across a lot of other things, and we will contribute to that. So I will put this fundamental question of eliminating armed officers in our schools right into that conversation. If it's not already on their list, uh, we will bring the question of standardized testing and implicit bias and exams onto that list. Uh, I will remind them that budget cuts, particularly learning assistance program cuts, if they even think about it, for example, will disproportionately harm communities of color. So I get to bring a racial equity lens through the world of school finance and education policy to them. I suspect they've already addressed a lot of these, but they'll need help in the detail of how it would impact or roll out the districts. And uh, I'm pretty excited about the work. There is no reason to use the budget reductions or the fiscal crisis as an excuse not to move on this. A lot of this is just policy uh, that does not require uh, some massive investment. It takes political risk.
0: You mentioned standardized testing, and I think this is an area where people see a lot of implicit bias. Um, Can can you just unpack that a little bit and and just share your, your thoughts on standardized testing?
1: Yeah. You know, as a, as a rule, I don't, I don't support it. Uh, <laughs> I was the first state in the country this last year to say that we were going to cancel it for the year, even before we had permission from the feds. Uh, I took quite a gamble because obviously the feds could have forced us to do it. Eventually, they concluded that that was a bad idea. Uh, but it was a bad idea beforehand in the way that we're doing it. So right now, it's every grade through eighth once in high school. It's only two subjects every year, but it's science three times. We're picking and choosing content areas in some ways that aren't reflective of the totality of learning. And what I mean by that is there are amazing analytical skills in writing that may or may not get assessed. The arts have the ability to inject quantitative reasoning, right, or expression or thought. Um, our students are unbelievable researchers. None of that is assessed. Uh, they connect with each other, their video production skills. Our community uh, or our uh, career and tech ed programs are creating unbelievably creative individuals for industry as well as those who are headed off to universities and colleges. None of that stuff is assessed. So we've picked the one set of things that our predominantly white universities historically have said is the measure of success in their institutions. Those are the things we doubled down on for the last 30 years. Those are what get tested. And we certainly want to make improvement, and we have. Uh, But it's not a comprehensive assessment of what students uh, are passionate about, what they can do, and what they know. Uh, In fact, it's pointing virtually every student to a university admissions, and we want every kid to have a shot at that if that's what they want. But the implied logic of it is, yeah, only 35% of you are going to go to university based on their enrollment uh, interests. So the message is for 65% of you, no matter how you performed on that, if you didn't get into a university, you're essentially uh, not successful. It is... Sorry to be disrespectful. It's a bull framework. Um, it doesn't honor kids for where they are, where they're going, particularly in a state with amazing community colleges where for a lot less money, you can go that route, transfer into a university. Uh, so we need to honor all pathways. When we got here, we tore down standardized tests as a graduation requirement. We got the bill through the legislature. We replaced it with multiple pathways to graduation. Students can design and engineer their way to graduation, or they can be the mechanic if they want to now. Uh, they build sequences of courses that lead them to post-secondary success. So that's just one example. Uh, I'll send a letter here soon to our congressional delegation asking them to permanently remove uh, the federal regime on testing, leave it up to classroom teachers around formative assessment and go to one, um, that's a, it's, a, it's a technical thing, but it's a sampling methodology where we would actually know how we perform against the other states. Because shockingly, after billions of dollars of standardized testing, you still do not have an objective measure on how Washington does compared to Texas, Mississippi, Florida, Massachusetts. There is not a single meaningful thing except this little thing called the NAEP, a little tiny assessment that's done every two years.
0: You are getting very positive uh, assessments right now. Very positive reception from our our audience on your message right there, as you can probably see on your screen. Uh, Another thing that I heard was a call to hire more teachers of color in classrooms. Uh, We've seen studies that show that children of color may benefit uh, from teachers who look like they do. Is that something that is currently being pursued?
1: It is. So we have some role in that here for sure. Um, We actually ultimately issue certifications for teachers. Our Professional Educator Standards Board is a separate organization. They set the conditions for our higher ed institutions. What will be taught in those institutions to prepare teachers? Uh, They've got a little bit of a role. And then back to us again, once we hire a teacher, we have this thing called the uh, Beginning Educator Program, the best program that really tries to create a mentorship. It is so powerful. The data is so clear that when teachers, particularly teachers of color, get a mentor teacher when they start, uh, they're more likely to stay in the profession and retain. Now, here's something we've learned, two things we've learned. If you look at teachers in the state of Washington who have been in the system for more than five years, so five years all the way up to the end of career teachers, there are about 9% teachers of color. If you look at teachers in the last five years, so they've got zero to five years of experience, they start to approach 14 and 15% teachers of color. So we are still so far away from the demographic of our students, but it is moving now finally uh, in very meaningful ways so that within 10 or 15 years, uh, you will see a significant transformation of who's in front of our students. We don't lose our teachers of color any faster or at a higher rate than we do our Caucasian white teachers. That surprises people. What does happen, though, is they go to any district they can. If you've ever been a first-year teacher, you like, I'll take any job. I need to pay off student loans. And the second they get a little experience, they go find openings in school districts where they feel like there's a stronger support community. So we are concentrating, for example, our, our Black African American and our, our Hispanic educators in about 20 school districts. And that's a powerful learning lesson about the way all the system has to create a space that is safe and allows people to um, really kind of take this risk in in discussions around race. A lot of our teachers don't feel that you go to communities where that's a safe thing to do. And so they leave those. They don't leave teaching, thankfully, but they go and they concentrate in in communities that they think are significantly more supportive. Your Seattles, your Highlines, your Federal Way's, your Tacomas, they are building and growing rapidly, their teachers of color, and in lots of parts of our state they're barely moving. They might get an initial hire and then that person leaves.
0: We have an audience question here, I believe from a teacher, asking about resources to help identify and resolve systemic discrimination in my school district. Do you have any recommendations for resources?
1: Yeah. So again, there's definitely some folks leading that work here. Uh, Puget Sound ESD in the Renton area, I think as a leader, we've got uh, kind of model districts that we think we can point folks to. And then ultimately, this can be a question of equity and civil rights. We have an investigative arm of our agency, and when we believe uh, or somebody recommends to us that a certificated individual, so generally that's any teacher or administrator, almost all of them have certificates, we actually can do investigative work around this. Um, Obviously, if it gets uh, bad enough, then we'd bring in an AG or somebody else like that. So there is a way to be very responsive to a a very serious acute uh, situation, and then there are these practices of bringing professionals in to do the professional development for the entire organization of the school district. Again, that's that kind of work that we're talking about here, driving resources disproportionately to those communities, intentionally recruiting staff and, and leaders of color, putting a mentorship program around them, actively working to elect school boards who are more reflective of their diverse community. Diverse school boards hire diverse superintendents. Diverse superintendents hire a more diverse staff. And so you also have to change Uh, who's in the positions of power in order to get uh, the momentum that probably complements the the more formal professional development.
0: So you've outlined a lot of concrete steps here uh, in our discussion. I'm wondering, in terms of measurement, how will you know if efforts toward equity are working? Are there specific data points or metrics that you will look to?
1: We do. So we take a very regular review, again, of the professionals, who's there. Uh, Where did they come from? What level of experience do they have? Are they concentrated in one area or another? Are they predominantly elementary, middle, high? We get to look at the entire profile of who's in our system and see the changes and the transformations or where that's not happening. We look at student performance. Uh, Really, we do an observational um, inventory of students when they come in in kindergarten, and then we get a very, very uh, specific look at them. Sometimes it's too reliant on standardized assessments, but we have other things. So we can look at attendance. We can look at discipline. We have a series of metrics that we look at to figure out whether the system is moving positively and where are the outliers where districts are outperforming. And then we actually, you know, at times have teams that go in and say, was this some systemic practice? Did you just get lucky? Is this a blip on the radar? Or did you do something here that we can replicate and bring to a peer district? Sometimes you have districts right next to each other with exactly the same demographics. And one is hitting it out of the park um, and the other one is really floundering. And it generally comes down to leadership and priorities. But we get to see that through our performance framework. And then we post that publicly, by the way. If you go to the OSPI website and you go to our report card, you can drill down to any school in the state. You can look at any of the things that we assess. You can drill right down to your own elementary school. You can look at eighth grade African-American boys and see how they're performing. We wanted the entire world to see this uh, because when you don't hide from data, people get to ask the right questions and they get to poke really hard, not just at me and the legislature and the governor, but at school board members and administrators. Information's power.
0: I had an instructor ask me to ask you uh, once you have implemented changes, do you have mechanisms in place that, that will, will make sure that BIPOC voices are continued to be heard and remain central to the discussion?
1: Yeah, I feel like we're growing stronger here as an organization. Um, I have a lot less visibility on, on how that is formally developed in local school districts. The policy framework locally is generally a school board. Um, oftentimes they'll have student representatives on them. Sometimes they have designated agenda time for labor uh, or community, or sometimes specifically uh, the voice uh, of racial justice. A lot of districts have organized teams around racial equity. So they're looking at the curriculum, their content, their hiring practices, um, who, who's having success. Again, 295 districts, so really disparate results out there. What we get the powerful responsibility to do is figure out where that's working well. Uh, articulate it in a way uh, that's in a written form and then create professional learning for other school districts who say, Hey, I heard this awesome things happening. How do we do it here? That's part of that transition of learning that occurs around the state. That's part of what we do. I will say we are a smaller organization by staff than we were a decade ago, Uh, even though the budget for K-12 is more than doubled in that time for school districts. So we're smaller. So we're pretty thin, uh, but we've made some deep dives in a couple of areas, particularly, uh, Office of Native Ed and our students with disabilities. Uh, And now we've got to really beef up all of our work around specifically race.
0: Before I let you go, I do want to give you a chance to address the distortion of the comprehensive sex education bill by your opponent. Uh, The language made it into the voter pamphlet. So what should voters know about this?
1: Yeah, this is really uh, sad and unfortunate. Uh, Comprehensive sexual health education is an important part of education. Uh, Sometimes the words uh, outlive the reality of it. The legislature adopted a new uh, framework that requires this in every school district, but they did it in a really smart way. K-3, through for example, um, is uh, SEL. It's anti-bullying. It's do you have a safe adult? Um, You're beginning to build skills for students. And then by uh, late Elementary and middle, it's puberty, which a lot of us went through in terms of training uh, in school. And then by high school, you are specifically trying to avoid sexual violence and sexual transmission, um, sexually transmitted diseases, and bystander training. So you're, tr- you're teaching students about their responsibility and protecting their classmates who might be vulnerable and subject to sexual harassment all the way to sexual violence. Uh, we still have an unprecedented problem with uh, violence towards young people that we think is addressed through education. And we have uh, sexually transmitted diseases once again skyrocketing. Uh, You all know why. When you push a curriculum that's either abstinence only or you've even capitulated a little bit in some communities to abstinence and um, birth control, for example, all the responsibility goes on a young woman. And the man, the boy says, I have no role in this now. I can't get her pregnant. So they're not wearing protection. And so STDs are exploding right now. So we think education is an important thing, and I know it comes in conflict with some people's religious framework. They have a religious lens on this instead of a learning lens. The legislature wrote a really good bill. Um, It is scientifically based. It is medically accurate. It is age appropriate. Uh, But here's what I'll conclude with. Nowhere in the law uh, does it teach sexual positions to fourth graders, which is the ridiculous assertion uh, of at least one of my opponents. Nowhere in the OSPI learning standards, so that's the second thing we do is we create learning standards, absolutely doesn't exist. Nowhere in the curriculum adopted by local school boards does it exist. Nowhere in the lesson plans of teachers does that exist. And nowhere are the materials to students does any of that stuff exist. This group found some caricatures, some drawings from a book that an author wrote that is geared towards parents in case they want to work with their own children. And it's referenced. That book is referenced. They found those images. They superimposed them on what looks like a statewide curriculum. And they've said to the world, they're going to teach our fourth graders uh, sexual positions. It is vile. Um, it is wrong. There's actually law that prohibits this. And so unfortunately, I've had to bring uh, a petition to the court. It's really not a lawsuit against an opponent. It allows the court to look at this and decide whether or not they want to strike that line from the voter's guide or not. Um, I don't know how they'll turn out. Uh, Either way, Ref 90 is going to the ballot. So the folks who oppose medically accurate, uh, scientifically based age appropriate uh, sexual health education, they want it out of our schools. Uh, This was a group founded uh, around anti-choice and anti-abortion, and they've transitioned themselves now into defeating this legislation. So you're going to get to choose that at the ballot in November, uh, assuming it's got valid signatures, which it sounds like it does. Yes on Ref 90 means I want to maintain comprehensive sexual health ed. no means you want to turn it down. <clears throat> the other smart thing the legislature did and we advocated for was uh, you have to adopt this at the local school board level. Uh, you have to make clear what your curriculum is going to be. You have to notify parents in the year in which the kid's going to get any of this. And parents always have the right to opt out. <clears throat> so the legislature really listened to these folks. And despite that, um, they are out there with a tremendous distortion and dishonesty. Uh, Because it's, in their minds, a religious fight. And for those of us who are educators, we think it's a health and safety issue.
0: We've covered so much ground tonight, and we're very grateful uh, to you for uh, your generosity of time and thoughts. Uh, I'll just give you a couple minutes to just tell us a little bit about your campaign and just just any final thoughts you might have.
1: Yeah, I really appreciate uh, a chance to, to listen to you all the questions and to reflect a lot about our practices here. As you might imagine, I talking to literally hundreds, sometimes thousands of people a week. And there's a lot of perspective around where we are on this just incredible moment. I keep saying to them, if all you did was be in the middle of a COVID once in a hundred year moment, it would overwhelm you. If all you did was have a recession, it would overwhelm you. Um, if all you did was have a 1968, like uh, social, just powerful social movement around race, it would be all consuming. Um, if you were running for reelection it all, it's totally consuming. All four of those things are happening at the same time. And I literally work about 13, 14 hours a day. Um, I'm off duty now, right? So this is my personal time, my personal phone, my personal network, so I get to be in, in campaign mode a little bit, uh, but it's a really complicated time. Uh, what I will say to you, as I said in the beginning, public ed, when it's done really well and when we're, when we're doing uh, great things for kids, is an amazing tool for democratization. It relies on labor, the power of labor, organized labor um, to be the strongest voice Um, in a classroom and to have that ability to educate kids. And um, I think it's an amazing system. I'm very, very proud of it. It is not without its deep flaws and it has absolutely um, uh, racist practices that are embedded in its systems and we're trying to root those out and that's our responsibility. But it is such a superior system than the sort of ultimate free market privatization that a lot of folks push in this state. And it gives us an opportunity again, an opportunity if we're committed to it, uh, to lift people up. We have got graduation rates when we hold for income, hold we'll constant for income. We've got graduation rates for Black African American students within six percentage points of their white peers. Now, that's the closest we have ever been, and so we are still making progress on, on true equity. But uh, it's an amazing system, with or without me. I hope you are champions of public education and what it can do for students and families, and um, stay very, very committed to to fair revenue. Uh, this is not a time for austerity. This is a time for us to double down on our values of equity from the tax code to our curriculum. So awesome to see you all. Thank you for the great opportunity.
0: Well, it's great to see you as well. And again, thank you uh, for your time this evening. As you said, you've been working 13, 14 hour days. So we know that this uh, this means quite a bit that you would spend uh, some of your free time with us. Uh, Superintendent Chris Reichdahl, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much.
1: Bye everyone, thank you.
0: Thank you again to Kat Pipkin with the Washington Indivisible Network and Julie Andrzejewski with Indivisible Tacoma. Thanks also to Robin Gittleman for her help. A reminder to join us on Tuesday, June 30th for a town hall with candidates for the state legislature in the 35th legislative district. And that is it for today. Our website is indivisiblepodcast.org and our email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. and is part of the Demcast podcast family. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. Special thanks to Lori Caldwell, and as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.